Hey, guess what, Rebecca? Oh, I don't know. This is this is very open. Uh, I, don't, I, I don't know. What? Tell me. It could be anything, but it is, in fact, that we have launched a special subscription offer for the listeners of the Third Sector podcast. Ooh, that's nice. It is nice. I like it a lot. So listeners mm. <laughs> who sign up to Third Sector's The Information Package can now get 50% off the first three months of their subscription when they pay by quarterly direct debit. All they need to do is go to www.thirdsector.co.uk forward slash podcast 50 to get involved. And when you do that, you will gain access to our brilliant magazine, unlimited news stories, high value sector analysis, and of course, lots more views and opinions from myself and yourself. Which, you know, if you listen to the Third Sector podcast, clearly you're not adverse to. You're, you're OK with it at the very <laughs> least, if not actively enjoying it. Uh, so where do they need to go to get that again? Oh, thank you so much for asking, Rebecca. Um, they need to go to www thirdsector.co.uk forward slash podcast 50 to sign up today. Hello and welcome to the Third Sector Podcast. I'm Rebecca Cooney, Senior Features and Analysis Writer. And I'm Emily Burt, Editor of Third Sector, the UK's leading publication for the voluntary and not-for-profit sector. Each month, we're delving a little deeper into some of the conversations being had in our community, learning more about exciting innovations and probing some of the issues we're facing. In this month's bumper special episode, we'll be looking at sexual harassment in fundraising, more than three years after the President's Club scandal first broke in the sector. Rebecca sits down with Ruby Bailey, who has been one of the people at the forefront of efforts to highlight and stomp out inappropriate behaviour among professional fundraisers. And she'll be asking... What has changed over the last couple of years and what more needs to be done? And as ever, we'll be bringing you our coronavirus care package. Good news stories from around the sector. That's all to come. A week ago, allegations were made that the Chartered Institute of Fundraising had ignored allegations of sexual assault occurring at one of its events. The situation with the CIOF is still developing and a review is underway, so we're not going to dwell too much on those specific allegations. But we did want to discuss the issue of sexual harassment and assault in fundraising. So before I joined Third Sector, I wrote for a business title called People Management Magazine. And I was doing quite a lot of reporting around the Me Too movement in a workplace context when the President's Club story first broke in January 2018. I remember at the time that although the Me Too movement had been going on for some months previously to this, it was very much being treated as like a Hollywood thing. But it was this charity fundraiser which brought it right into the UK limelight. You know, this massive ticketed event only for men, auction items including lunch with Boris Johnson, who was then the Foreign Secretary, um, afternoon tea with the former Bank of England Governor Mark Carney, and these hostesses who were being routinely groped and harassed and made to then sign a five-page non-disclosure agreement about the event. I remember that that Financial Times investigation, which sent two reporters undercover to the dinner, was absolutely explosive. Rebecca, you were working on Third Sector at the time when this first came out. Um, what do you remember about the reporting that took place around this story? I mean, I think my first reaction was, why didn't anyone come to us with a tip-off that this was going on? You know, mm. uh, much as Madison Marriage, the reporter involved, did a fantastic job. And it was it was an amazing investigation. Extraordinary journalism. Yeah, like it really was. There's a bit of you it's like, oh, I could have done that. Uh, but no, seriously, I think actually I do think some of that is connected to the sector reaction at the time, which was largely nothing to do with us. 
And actually, that's kind of fair enough. Um, you know, the President's Club was a registered charity, but it existed solely to host these sleazy, exploitative events. And it wasn't really engaged with the wider sector at all. It, you know, it wasn't the case that you would go to a fundraising conference and chat to the fundraising director of Oxfam and the fundraising director right. of the President's Club. Like, it it literally existed for these events. Um you know, beyond writing checks to the charities that it felt like giving to each year, it wasn't actually engaging with other charities. People weren't applying to it for money, I don't think. Um, so the sector there was being used as a fig leaf, you know, both for the event itself and, I mean, presumably for the consciences of the men attending, right? Um, and there was more just this sense of outrage that charity name was being taken in vain in that way. The, the biggest debate at the time was actually over whether charities should hand the money back now that they knew where it came from. You know, some didn't. Uh, the Great Ormond Street Children's Hospital did. Um, and then actually was told that it couldn't. Um, and there was a whole debate about, you know, the, the ethical debate that was going on was once you uh, know... Of the money. Yeah, yeah, once you know where this money's come from, can you accept it? Um and so, you know, the harassment and the assault was condemned, but there was kind of a feeling that this wasn't really the sector's issue, that it was an issue of charity being used inappropriately, not a charity itself behaving badly. And actually, in this particular case, that was kind of fair enough. You know, and I, I think that that was a sort of fair enough discourse. Then, what, six weeks later or so, you get the Oxfam Haiti story in The Times um, and... That was very much more a story about charity behaviour, about attitudes and processes and safeguarding within the sector. But actually, it wasn't really until Ruby's blog the following year that that conversation started to be held publicly about the safety of charity workers within the sector. Um, and that's not to say that they're unconnected. Um, so one of the things Ruby talked about so powerfully in her piece was the idea that a little bit of inappropriate behaviour could be tolerated if it was for a good cause, if that's going to lead for more money for charity. And, you know, that's what was going on. That's what was being harnessed writ large with the President's Club. But her contention was that actually this sort of thing was happening all the time on a much smaller scale. Yeah, and that reality is exactly what you've just touched on there, that these issues are always so much bigger than just any one organisation. The sad reality is that abuses of power in the charity sector are long-running and very widespread issues. You look back at this podcast alone, we have previously run episodes on toxic workplaces, systemic racism, safeguarding failures and endemic sex abuse in the international aid sector. There is a much wider thing going on here and that is not going to go away anytime soon. And so I am really interested to hear Ruby's reflections on the last few years and what needs to be done now to continue this movement. Two years ago, the fundraiser Ruby Bailey wrote a blog for Civil Society discussing the prevalence of sexual harassment and assault within the fundraiser community. Fundraising, she said, as a profession is disproportionately female and is in no small part centred around building close relationships with powerful people, often men. If Me Too has taught us anything, she said, it's how universal women's experiences of sexual harassment and assault really are. We've all been there, many of us whilst at work. The more conversations I have with my fellow fundraisers, the more accounts of sexualised inappropriate behaviour from donors I collect. From the supposedly innocuous compliments in terms of endearment, a hand placed a little low on the back or the knee, to explicit objectification, groping and propositioning for sex. And she said many female fundraisers had experienced being told to tolerate this kind of behaviour if it meant obtaining a sizeable donation for their charity. In this context, she said, reporting such behaviour and standing up for yourself can compromise a relationship with a donor or partnership and thus donations, adding to the barriers that women face and, of course, particularly women of colour, disabled women and women from the LGBTQ plus community. 
Moreover, she said, it is common knowledge that several of the forefathers of fundraising, men to whom we give guru status, can get a little bit handsy. She acknowledged that most charities will have policies and procedures in place and that if you asked any fundraising director about their position on this kind of behaviour, they would condemn it. But, she said, our leaders need to wake up to the fact that zero tolerance is not our reality and do more. That was two years ago this month and it had a galvanising effect on the fundraising sector and the wider sector at the time. Ruby Bailey is with me to chat about where we are now. Thank you for joining us, Ruby. So what prompted you to write that piece in the first place? Yeah, great question. And I can't believe that it's two years ago. Um, it's quite surreal. Um, yeah, and for us to kind of still be having these these conversations. Um, I think two years ago, you know, I was about um, three and a bit years into my fundraising career. Um, and I had already, you know, been speaking to a lot of my colleagues, as I mentioned in the piece itself, um, about the things that that they had experienced. And it was a kind of gentle drip, 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 you know, women share, right? Like when we get together, we talk about these things. Mm. You know, there were a few people that I had been kind of, inverted commas, warned about. Um, and I was just very aware that it was a very um, kind of present thing within within our profession. I met an amazing group of people via um, Civil Society's 25 Under 35 Up and Coming Fundraisers shortlist. And in discussions with them at some of the events that we attended as part of that shortlisting, it was clear that people felt that action needed to be taken, but that nobody was feeling that it was safe enough to kind of stick their head above the parapet and put something out there um, without fear of, of repercussion. And I guess... At that point in time, you know, I was hugely passionate about the issue. I was tired of hearing about the stories. And frankly, I was quite naive and probably quite brash as well. And so I thought, well, I'm going to do it then. I'm going to be the one that does it because I feel like I'm in a position where I can kind of take whatever the, the backlash is. Hmm. Um, I had a supportive, you know, boss. Um, I was unlikely to receive the same kind of backlash as potentially a woman of colour speaking about these issues would receive. So... You know, I felt like I'm just going to do it. So I wrote it and I have to say nobody, I think, was expecting the reaction. A lot of people ask, you know, did you write that with this kind of movement that then has has kind of come about in the last two years in mind? And the truth is no. Um, you know, it was a kind of provocative piece, um, but I don't think anybody could see quite what would happen as a result of its publication. And so you mentioned that there's kind of been a movement over the last two years. How has the kind of landscape changed over the past two years with this? I think it's definitely um, much more in the kind of public or professions consciousness. And the way that I often describe what's happened over the last two years is that we've kind of heated up the temperature of the water that some of the people who are perpetuating these behaviours or these things are kind of swimming in, right? So I think definitely the mm. increased awareness around the issue has meant that um, hopefully, you know, fewer people are feeling that they'll be able to get away with or feeling kind of that they won't um, experience any repercussions for behaving in these ways. And I think that in itself is really powerful and hopefully has contributed to, to keeping people safe. I mean, we've obviously seen some pretty concrete changes, both the Institute of Fundraising and other organisations, you know, other charities who have reviewed their policies and their complaints kind of processes and stuff to try to make sure that they are giving people an avenue to report things. And that's also really important. Policies and procedures are only part of the puzzle, but they are a really important part 
of the puzzle. So I think in that sense, there has been progress. I, I also think that the the kind of framework that upholds or like permits this behavior to happen i mean i'm talking about the patriarchy but then like the institutions you know within our sector um and the individuals who hold power within our sector who kind of make room i guess for want of a better phrase um for these things to take place or uphold cultures which allow things to take place those are really well established institutions and individuals and a system and a system you know a patriarchal system and so I think I'm under no illusion that there's still huge amounts of work to do um, mm. in that regard. I mean, we aren't going to fix sexual harassment as an issue. Like, it's something that is present in our entire society across the globe. So, you know, no, nobody, <laughs> nobody's thinking that we're going to fix it in its entirety. But I think, um, yeah, there's definitely there's definitely still a way to go in our profession. And, and I would really like to see, you know, some of those people that we know are perpetuating this behaviour. I know they're still out there. I know they're still working. I know they're still, um, you know, attending events and stuff like that. And that's quite difficult um, because you kind of know that the potential for something else to happen is still out there. So, yes, definitely a way to go. And it, and it, I should also add that when I wrote the piece, there was a real um, outpouring of people sharing their own experiences, which was hugely you know, powerful. Um, and that's what created the movement. Like it wasn't my article. It was people being brave enough to... Um, to come forward and share their experiences that hasn't stopped in the last two years I continue to receive on a regular basis you know Twitter messages or LinkedIn messages or emails from people who are continuing to experience these things from really high profile individuals in our sector and from donors so it hasn't stopped the behavior it's definitely still ongoing and you know I talked about that hot water there are still some people who think that they can get away with it yeah and I think that's interesting, going back to what you were saying about being surprised sort of at the reaction to the piece, because I suppose on one level, if you're putting, you know, you said, as you said, women are having these conversations. So it's not that it was unknown. And I think that's kind of the reaction I have to sort of wider conversations in the news where women start sharing their experiences of sexual harassment. You know, we've had it in the last few weeks um, and a lot of people start going, oh, who knew this was happening? And you still think, well, we had Me Too a couple of years ago and also women know this has been happening, women have been sharing it. And yet it still seems every time that institutions are surprised and it almost that it needs to be said loudly in a public forum to, I don't know, to kind of try and, yeah, make that temperature change. It, it just always feels like it's it's so hard to kind of, yeah, as you say, get the system to shift its position on it and to not, and to make it unacceptable to be doing these things rather than we know it's going on and... We hope it'll stop. I think that we need to not underestimate how difficult it is to change the culture that we're talking about and change the system that mm. we're talking about, right? And I and I don't say that as an excuse for kind of poor behaviour or people not stepping up to the plate in that regard, but I think that it's much easier to, you know, say something performative on Twitter about how your organisation has a zero tolerance policy and then kind of continue as if nothing had happened than actually confront um, the, the kind of violence that we're talking about. As women, as a survival technique, it's easier to bury your head in the sand. And of course, as men, particularly those men, I think, who, you know, are active in our sector around issues of equality and diversity, who consider themselves to be the good guys, it's hugely difficult to self-reflect 
on your own behaviour and your own sense of identity and your own upbringing and the ways in which you actually benefit from the oppression that we're talking about. You know, and, and this conversation doesn't just apply to gender violence. It's exactly the same conversation that we need to be having as white people around issues of race. And I think, you know, just doing that confrontation is really, really hard. Um, and so it's a lot easier to, to kind of sweep it under the rug. What needs to kind of concretely change in how we approach women's safety and fundraising going forwards? I mean, I'm thinking both in terms of protecting women in the first place and in handling complaints once they've been made. I wish I had like a silver bullet answer to this question. Um, <laughs> I, I, don't, I, you know, I don't want to pretend that I do. I think it's a hugely complex and hugely difficult thing. Um, but I definitely have some areas, I think, that we need to do better in and they're based on my reflections in advance of coming to speak to you today on the last couple of years I think the first thing um and this again is a society-wide issue but you know we can take responsibility for that within our own circles of um, influence is understanding how the kind of more innocuous things that we talk about and I do reference this in my article make way for the most horrific things that happen to women in this country and I think there's a huge education piece around understanding that. It's called the pyramid of violence. Um, so that people realise that, you know, even using terms of endearment or um, maybe kind of inappropriately touching somebody's lower back or arm is part of the same system where women are raped and killed. I don't think that there's total buy-in to that. I think that people say they understand it, but in practice you know, people still get defensive if they're challenged about something which they consider to not be that big a deal. And so mm. I think if we can understand how that system works and we can understand all of the different layers in that pyramid of, of violence, it will really help us then when it comes to kind of navigating prevention and reporting um, because you have to understand the nuance of it. Yeah, and I was going to say, like, it does feel like there is a conversation there about nuance, that it's not saying you know, if you touch a woman's lower back to move her out of the way in a bar, you are a rapist. But it is saying, like, it's part of the same thing. of, And, and that is a particular bugbear of mine, that just use your mouth words, please. Um, you know, you wouldn't, <laughs> you wouldn't do that to a man, maybe. And the, the fact that you see women's bodies as much more accessible is part of the problem, perhaps. Yeah, exactly. That's a really good example. I think there's another thing that we have to acknowledge within fundraising, and people don't like to talk about it. You know, we are a disproportionately female charity sector, and then fundraising is even more disproportionately female. So already as a kind of demographic or as an audience, whatever you want to call it, we're more vulnerable because we're more women. And we know that women experience these issues disproportionately. The relationship between the demographics of our profession and our sector with the fundraising activity that we're then carrying out, you know, the relationships that we're often building, whether it's with senior people at a big corporate company or whether it's major donors, are with powerful and predominantly men um you know and and that that is a symptom of the patriarchy right like those people are in power because of the very reasons that we get sexually harassed i know it's uncomfortable to talk about because talking about equality diversity and inclusion very much leans towards like treating everybody equally we should get more men into the sector but i really think that we need to be talking about this disproportionately female um kind of demographic and how that actually creates kind of like a hotbed um for for this behavior to take place i think on policies and procedures and i get asked this a lot um there's a huge amount of work to be done full stop right across the board on what good policies and procedures look like i mean i was talking to a colleague the other day 
um, and trying to explain to them that actually like the idea of a policy and procedure and the templates that we might use for a complaints policy were literally designed by men, like they're patriarchal tools. So of course they don't work <laughs> for the people who are coming forward to report. And I think we have to go back to, to the kind of roots of that, right? Like everything is designed through a patriarchal lens, whether that's in an institution's complaints policy or policing, right? Like mm. across across the spectrum. And so I think um, there's a huge amount of work to be done on, on policies and procedures. And there's a fantastic quote um, by an amazing academic called Sarah Ahmed, which I always go back to here, which is that making a complaint can feel like becoming a character in somebody else's story. Mm-hmm. What happens to you is dependent on decisions that are made without your knowledge or consent. And I, it just it gives me goosebumps to read that out because I think she really nails there what it can feel like when you're going through these... Um, you know, pretty uh, opaque, um, inflexible um, policies and, and, and processes. And so from my point of view, I think we need to be braver when it comes to policies and procedures. I know that there's a lot of legal ramifications around taking people through policies. I think we can be braver than we are being at the moment. I think we also need to be victim led. And I mean that very genuinely, ensuring that whatever process we follow is in line with what a survivor wants rather than just being about us um, completing tick boxes or taking the next step according to our policy. I think they need to allow for the nuance that we talked about at the beginning around the different types of things that can happen. Um, And they need to be emotionally intelligent, (laughs) which, Mm. you know, it's a small two words, but actually I think that's hugely difficult to do. And I certainly don't think that, you know, we're seeing that. Um, And then finally, I think they just need to not be hailed as a solution in and of themselves. I say this a lot. Um, you can have all of the best policies and procedures in the world in place, designed by women, based on feminist principles, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. They're not going to fix the problem. Mm. Um, we need to be thinking about it much more holistically than that. That makes a lot of sense. And just a kind of as a, a, a kind of provocation, I guess. Um, Many, you know, a number of people out there will be wondering why this is the job of the professional bodies and not, for example, the police. And I just wanted to sort of see what your thoughts are, what your response to that was. Yeah, no, it's a really, really good point. And um, I'm going to go back to what I said about being victim led, because my first reaction to this question is it's none of our business where people go. Yeah. Like if if a survivor wants to report to a professional membership body, wants to report to their employer or wants to go to the police, that is up to them. And unless we are that person, we do not have any authority when it comes to telling them where they should be able to go or not. Um, But then, of course, you know, it's not as straightforward as that, is it? I think professional bodies, in my point of view, and I don't I don't think anybody is disputing this, do have a responsibility to keep members safe, you know, particularly those bodies that are kind of funded by those members themselves. And you know, primarily we're talking about events, of course, like if something happens, they they are liable for what goes on there. And so I do think, you know, they have a role. And I think more than that, it, when we're talking about inaction, so if we're not taking action, what those professional bodies are doing is literally putting people in harm's way by not dealing with an issue that they might be aware of. And I think that's something that they have to take responsibility for. And the other thing I would say, which is, I guess is a bit of a cop-out answer, to be honest, is that none of these institutions are doing right by survivors anyway. So you talk about the police. We know that the police is not an institution where women can safely report something, be 100% sure they're going to be taken seriously and see that 
through to kind of fruition, whatever that looks like for them. I mean, that statistic about 1.5% of rape cases leading to charge or summons, that's terrifying to me. You know, street harassment isn't technically a crime, although, you know, they've just, they're just looking at changing that, um, now looking at misogyny. So I think we have to acknowledge, well, that doesn't provide us with any answers, that there's nowhere at the moment for us to go um, where we could be 100% sure that we will be listened to, validated, and that the action that we want to be taken will be taken. And looking back, obviously this has been going on for a number of years, as we've said, how should regulators and professional bodies be approaching historical allegations, kind of both those that were reported at the time and then maybe, you know, the reaction wasn't perhaps what it should have been, or those where the person hasn't made an allegation until now? How should they be dealing with that? Anybody who is questioning the timing of somebody coming forward... Um, whether that's, you know, oh, you've left it five years, why are you only doing it now? Or you have subsequently worked with that person and it's been fine, so why are we talking about it now? That's victim blaming. It's it's 100% victim blaming. You know, coming out and reporting is a hugely hostile environment. Women are vilified if we don't report and then not believed if we do report. And then the perpetrators are protected as well mm. when we do. So I think... It's really understandable that people don't do it. Of course it is. You know, the amount of discourse over the last two years that people have tried to shut down, people in power have tried to shut down kind of behind the scenes has been really scary. Um, And I know that I have and that um, other people who have been working on this issue alongside me have worried for our, you know, our mental health, our livelihoods, our professional relationships, our credibility, that kind of thing. Um, So... All I feel for those people who are bringing historical allegations now is huge amounts of empathy. And I think if we're asking the question, well, why didn't you come before? Like we're coming from a place that's already deeply flawed. Absolutely. And, you know, leading on from that, what advice would you offer to anyone who has experienced this behaviour within the fundraising world? Sure. I mean, the first thing I would say is that you have to do what is right for you. And I don't feel that I can recommend to people that they report to institutions whether that's professional membership bodies or the police or their employer if the the kind of policies are unfit and are just going to re-traumatize them or harm them further I think really looking at what you need in order to take care of yourself is really important um and you know whatever that looks like I would always offer up the informal networks that are there although I fundamentally believe we shouldn't be reliant on informal networks they are out there um to support those individuals with whatever action they would like to take whether that's reporting whether that's just kind of pastoral support um there are a group of people out there a fierce group of people kind of doing everything in their power to to support survivors and mobilize to keep people safe even if that's not through traditional routes so i think until we can be confident um that you know complaints are going to be handled well um I don't feel comfortable recommending that people kind of go and do something that that doesn't feel right to them. Um, I would just encourage those individuals to get in touch with someone they can talk to, with me, um, with anyone who they feel comfortable talking to about this issue, if they want support. Fair enough. And we will leave a link to a support helpline in the show notes as well, um, so that people can access that if if that's what they want. And then just kind of as as a final question, how can employers and professional bodies ensure that anyone who's been the recipient of inappropriate behaviour feels able to make a complaint? 
Yeah, this is such a good question because we're dealing with such a huge issue and I think such a huge cultural shift is is required. Um, I remember um, speaking on a panel last year around um, zero tolerance and the concept of a zero tolerance policy and how actually that can put people off because what zero tolerance can mean to survivors is like that person will literally be fired because they said xyz to you like it's not always proportionate to the the behavior that people have experienced and that goes back to our conversations around nuance right and so i think um being able to articulate your position in a way that embodies that nuance is really important um the other thing i would say is that i think that we just need to get rid of the bad apples and um, there are perpetrators and there are people protecting perpetrators out there um and i think they need to go and then Back to my point around policies and procedures not being the be all and end all. I think that we need to look at as employers, as individuals, as professional bodies, you know, whoever we are addressing this issue at all different points and kind of places where it happens. So not just having a policy, but having education around pyramid of violence and rape culture, looking at very practical training that's not just about unconscious bias, but is about bystander intervention, how to respond to disclosure. I mean, how many managers do we think have actually been trained in how to respond to disclosure and have a kind of emotionally intelligent conversation when somebody is sharing something mm. with them? Um, I, I think, you know, I know some wonderful people who would consider themselves feminists who I've told about things that have happened to me and they have responded in an invalidating way. And I that's not coming from a place of um, not believing. It's it's kind of a trigger reaction. And I think being able to support people to be better at um, managing those difficult conversations is hugely important. And then finally, I think, you know, the way that you're perceived externally as an organisation, whether you're safe or not, is such a huge factor. And I really would like employers and professional bodies to not underestimate how much people talk and mm. how kind of informal reputation that organisations have will then impact on how safe um, you know, people feel whether they're working for them or applying to work for them or, or whatever it is. And so, yeah, there's a lot going on. Um, but I think it, we have to take a holistic approach, as I said. Each week we put together a coronavirus care package of good news and this week as something of a brain cleanser I would like to introduce you to Pat Bishop because she is my new hero. Who's Pat Bishop? Pat Bishop is amazing. So she lives in Poole in Dorset and she has decided to mark her birthday by raising money for charity. Something, you know, a lot of us, a lot of us do. The birthday in question is her 100th birthday. She is 100 years old on Tuesday coming up, I believe. Wow. Happy birthday. Yeah, happy birthday. And to celebrate, she's going to walk 500 steps every day during Lent to raise money for families around the world living without access to water. And she's raising money for CAFOD to support them. So Pat is an amazing woman who was a founding member and former director of the Drama and Arts Department at Bath University. She retired 35 years ago, but is an active member of the St Vincent de Paul Society. Uh, so that's a volunteering charity. And she's also apparently an active tap dancer. Yes. 
Not enough tap dancers in the world today. Yeah, right? Nowhere near. Not enough centenarian tap dancers. Like, yeah. So uh, she apparently said, uh, when I turned 100 years old, people would ask what I'd like for my birthday. And at my age, I don't need anything. So I would be delighted if people could sponsor me as their gift. Um, so far, she's raised £6,400. Uh, and she says 500 steps might not seem far. And a few years ago, I would have signed up to do 10,000 steps a day. However, nowadays, 500 steps will still be a challenge, particularly as the weather is rather chilly. That's amazing. Good for you, Pat. Absolutely fantastic. Um, so she turns 100 on Tuesday. If you wanted to give her a little birthday present, if you go to www.justgiving.com forward slash fundraising forward slash Pat dash Bishop two. Um, and yeah, I just think the story's amazing. Um, she's doing a fantastic thing. And I think I've worked out who I want to be when I grow up. Um, I think I'm, I, don't, I don't maybe I need to wait till I'm like 80 or 90 to take up tap dancing because I can't tap dance. But it's not, I've got time. Well, yes, maybe that will be like a post-lockdown project. We can, we can take up tap dancing together. <laughs> Speaking of tapping, I believe you've got some news for us. Oh, my God. I didn't even plan that. I didn't you even plan that. You thought about that one. I didn't. You it haven't. just happened. It just happened. I'm that good. Slash bad. This is outrageous. <laughs> um, oh, well... Well, Rebecca's just kind of stolen my thunder with my lead in there. But my good news is the launch of new tap and go charity donation kiosks at UK railway stations around the country. I can't believe I didn't make that link with tap dancing. Uh, um, <coughs> so we're not quite back commuting yet. We are still working from home. But if the vaccine rollout stays on track, there's a good chance our stations will be filling up again come the autumn. And when we do start getting back to our train journeys, we might see evidence of a new partnership between Network Rail, the payment provider Worldline and the kiosk manufacturer Evoke, who have worked together to launch a range of new contactless donation kiosks in support of a range of homelessness charities. This is part of a national campaign led by Network Rail, which is called Roots Out of Homelessness, and it supports the Big Issue Foundation, Crisis, End Youth Homelessness, Railway Children and Shelter. These kiosks can use interactive imagery to help raise awareness of a charitable cause. And even better, they allow people who are passing through stations to quickly and easily donate anything from £3 to £15 to the Roots Out of Homelessness campaign. They just have to tap their payment cards onto the terminal. So in the past, we have seen real success with contactless donation points. I remember Nationwide, a couple of years back, introduced a contactless donation point, again, actually to support homelessness charities. And I remember that being wildly successful when they installed those at some of their branches. And I think putting them in stations is potentially a great new fundraising option for charities, particularly while we are all still figuring out what the rules might be around social distancing later in the year, fundraising in crowded places. Even better, these kiosks can literally be there 24 hours a day, you know. So it's just looks like a brilliant initiative. I'm really hoping that I will be able to see those uh, in stations around the country. And best of luck to all of the charities involved. I hope you get a nice tidy little windfall as a result of them. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's just such a clever idea in terms of sort of human behaviour that we don't have coins anymore and people, you know, might well give to give to a charity or or to somebody in need 
in a train station, but you just don't have coins. But in a train station, we are very used now, particularly those of us who live in London or who live in areas which have kind of contactless smart cards for operating the local transport system. We're very used to just tapping cards and, and to get through barriers and to, to deal with it. So I think it's a really, really clever idea. And uh, yeah, all the best. them. It's been very successful. As you said, there was definitely one in Bristol with uh, shop fronts doing something similar. Uh, so yeah, hopefully this will really take off. So it's tapping for good causes all around this week. We'll be back with another episode soon so make sure you subscribe to this the third sector podcast on your favorite podcast app to be the first to know about it until then i'm emily burt and i'm rebecca cooney thank you to our guest ruby bailey and to our producer Lindsay riley at rethink audio we will see you next week <laughs>